morning or good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are. On behalf of RBCS, welcome to today's webinar on stupid metrics tricks and how to avoid them. I am Rex Black, president of RBCS. We are a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we've delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. Our team of international consultants deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of many books on software testing. We'll be 14 by the end of this year, as well as being the past president of the ISDQB and the ASTQB. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. Thank you, Linda Thorne, for reviewing the materials for PDU status and for making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, you may submit them throughout the presentation via your webinar interface, but please note that they are answered only at the end. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not-just-for-profit company. If you enjoy our free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. Happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need. You can contact us at info at rbcs-us.com. Okay, so um, stupid metric tricks and how to avoid them. Um, you can see here the three stooges running Noah's Ark Shipbuilding Company. Only one of them realizes that two plus two is not actually three, um, but is, of course, four. So <laughs> that's one example of a stupid metrics trick. Uh, what are some others? Today you'll get introduced to them. Um, now, I say introduced in that... Um, you know, maybe you've seen people do stupid things with metrics before, and you might think, oh, yeah, 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 we know about those. I know about those. Everybody knows about those. Well, hmm, if they're so well understood, as I said to somebody when I gave this speech the first time at the Heisenberg Conference in Moscow last year, if these things are all so well understood, how come they still happen? <laughs> if everybody knows these are stupid, why do they keep doing them? So let's look at these things, which are stupid that people do with metrics and talk about how to implement metrics that aren't so stupid. Because, you know, you don't want to be stupid, do you? Now, you might notice that this slide is kind of changing on you and, you know, your attention is drawn to the fact that something's changing and I asked you a leading question about whether you find the slide easier to read when the font is lighter or darker. Uh, so you may be really focusing on this slide. It doesn't really say anything particularly interesting. Uh, but what it does do is it gives us an illustration of what's called the Hawthorne effect. Now you might say, what is it, this Hawthorne effect? Well, the Hawthorne effect is... Um, something that happened. It's named after a, a factory uh, in, in Hawthorne. It's also something that's called the Westinghouse effect because it was a Westinghouse factory that's in Hawthorne. 
um, where they um, had some people come in to do a time and motion study. Basically, guys are doing a sort of a Taylorist time and motion study to increase productivity. If you don't know who F.W. Taylor was, I'd encourage you to do a Google search and give a, give a read to his bio, say, on Wikipedia. Anyway, so they're using F.W. Taylor's techniques to, to examine um, factors that affect productivity. And what they, they, they made an assumption of, well, lighting certainly is going to affect productivity in a factory. I mean, you know, people need to be able to see things to be able to work on them. So they set up their measures for productivity. They did a baseline measurement of productivity. They increased the lighting and they measure productivity and the productivity had gone up. They're like, oh, yay, yeah, there you go. Positive correlation, you know, that's what we thought. And then they, you know, were trying to determine, well, what's the what's the exact curve here? What is the, the equation that, that determines this? <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so they lowered the light um, and then they measured productivity and the productivity had gone up again like higher than what it was from when the light was brighter. So this is an example of a basic rule of thumb that says what gets measured gets done. You measure it, people are like, oh, that's getting measured. People are paying attention to that. I better pay attention to that. I better focus on making that number move in the right direction because, well, it's either because I'm a nice person and I like to do what my boss wants to get done and I try to figure out what my boss is trying to accomplish and make that happen, or it's I might get fired if I don't do what my boss is focused on and wants to get done, so I better make it happen. Either way, the result is the same. What gets measured gets done. Now, that has a corollary, which is what doesn't get measured doesn't get done. And this is part of the problem, and this is where stupid metrics tricks come in. Because I can set up a measurement, draws people's attention to that measurement, but by drawing people's attention to that measurement, it may draw their attention away from something else that might actually be more important. So here's an example. I mean, I, I have two teenage daughters, love them very much. Uh, but the extent to which they can get wound up over things like retweets and followers and so forth is surreal. Um, and notice that this focus on stuff going on on your cell phone um, is not always that great of an idea. Like if you're outside walking around, these are figures from uh, Liberty Mutual, uh, their uh, website, though, I think. I think they actually these figures came from the Department of Transportation, if I remember. This is just on the on the Liberty Mutual website here. <laughs> Notice that there are people, the blue numbers, light blue numbers are people who do the thing that you oughtn't do because they're risky, like talk on the phone while crossing the street or text an email while crossing the street. Um, so people do that even though they say it's dangerous. Right. I mean, it's not it's not like people are, you know, the, the the yellow numbers and the blue numbers are non overlapping. Sixty uh, percent of pedestrians use smartphones when crossing the street. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, and, and 
So this is what gets measured gets done. Oh, I replied to my emails. I measure that. I, I retweeted. I tweeted. I have a new follower. Uh, oops, I got hit by a car, right? Because you're focused on things that aren't actually that important. Um, and, you know, there's a whole separate discussion that we could have about factors that influence perceptions of risk. Uh, there's actually on the RBCS website a presentation by a fellow named Eric Simmons from, uh, well, at the time that he did it, he was at Intel. I'm not sure where Eric is now, but it's a presentation on factors that influence the perception of risk, which is certainly worth taking a look at. Um, so if people can understand intellectually that something is risky, but they may not understand the level of risk, but it's certainly pretty high. I mean, people people do get hit by cars while they're walking across the street, texting or playing with their phone. So it does happen. Uh, and it, I believe the statistic that I heard last year was that um, distracted driving has either overtaken or is about to overtake drunken driving in terms of causes of accidents. So that's pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, now, part of that is due to the success that most societies have had with curbing drunken driving. So it is a declining target. But, you know, years ago, um, when people got distracted and distracted driving is because a bee got in their car or because their kids were freaking out in the back seat or something. But now you've got this little distraction machine that they hold in their hands. I was behind someone just yesterday who was in the left lane of the freeway going 10 miles and under, under 10 miles an hour under the flow of traffic. I get around this jerk. And I look in my rearview mirror. What's he doing? He's playing with his cell phone. You know? Okay. Is that, by the way, operating a, a semi truck pulling uh, uh, cargo. <laughs> so, you know, people get distracted by measures. And you got to remember this when you're, when you're putting the measures together. Um, now, pushing on a string. This is a really important concept in metrics. Um, now, the, the, uh, cartoon here is from the 2008 financial crash, um, which it's hard to believe that that was almost a decade ago. It's still very memorable to me, but uh, some of you listening today may not have been paying all that much attention to it because maybe you were in college or something then when this happened, but it was, it was a complete catastrophe um, and scared the hell out of everyone. Uh, and anyway, what happened was that the central banks, especially the Federal Reserve under Ed Bernanke, the guy shown here in his, his suit pushing on a string, uh, basically tried to pour a bunch of liquidity into the economy. And it eventually worked, but it was really slow. Um, and during that time, it was pretty scary. And so people in, in observing the sluggish response were saying Ed was pushing on a string. Now, what that means, as you can see illustrated here, is you can push one end of the string, but that's unlikely to make the other end of the string move. So this happens when you put a metric in place and you want to make it move one way or the other, and maybe you do make it move, but the thing that you actually need to make move doesn't move because the thing that you're measuring is a surrogate metric for the thing that you actually want to make move and the way the, the way that you're motivating movement in that actually has no effect on the thing that you want to make move, the metric you want to change. Um, but people observe this and they get um, uh, justly frustrated. Um, I'll give you an example of this. Um, 
I had a client tell me that they were, um, but they were very proud of the fact that they had adopted a, um, what they thought was a very fair way of rewarding and punishing people. And the way they did it was that they um, put metrics in place uh, for their annual performance evaluations. And the, the developers were measured based on the number of severity one bugs that were filed against their code. And the testers were measured by the number of their bug reports that were rejected. And the correct number, the correct target for both of those was zero. Um, and if they're, if they, if, if developers exceeded um, zero sub one bugs, they got dinged on their performance evaluations. If the uh, testers had any of their bug reports rejected as not actually bugs, in other words, they were false positives, they got dinged on their performance evaluations. Um, you can imagine the kind of chaos and morale problems that that caused. People were incredibly frustrated. Um, and of course, it actually didn't cause any real change uh, because when you're measuring rejected bug reports, what you're actually looking at is what's the level of, of noise in the signal? And, and so you want to make that go down. That's admirable. But what you actually get when you do something like what they did is you set up a situation where the testers are incented to never, ever, ever admit that any of their bug reports are wrong. So you just argue and argue and argue and argue. Right? So the noise is still there. It's just that the measurement has been destroyed. Same thing with the SEV1 bugs. No developer will ever admit that a SEV1 bug is actually in their code. It's like, no, that's got to be in somebody else's code. Or no, that's not actually a bug. Well, notice that they say, no, that's not actually a bug. Now they're in opposition to the the tester who found the bug who's saying, oh, yes, by God, it is. I never have any bug reports rejected. You can check my metrics for the last year. I had zero rejected bug reports. I never filed rejected bug reports. Now, a whole bunch of time is spent arguing back and forth when what we're trying to accomplish is increase the quality of the code by reducing initial defect density when the, the code is handed off to the testers and to reduce the amount of noise that is in the signal, the signal in this case being the um, defect reports. So that's uh, that's obviously very frustrating and, and, and does not cause the desired movement. The other thing that can happen with this too is if, if you're not careful that, you know, every process has a certain amount of random variation built into it. And if you assume that every single movement in your process metrics is statistically significant, well, you're just wrong. And they're not. Um, and if you are mistaking random variation for statistically significant movement in your metric and you start making decisions based on that, you, you are literally being being jerked around by noise in your signal, by random variation. Not a very good way to manage. All right. Now, my previous example um, alluded to a common uh, mis uh, malfunction or dysfunction in, in management, um, which is so well known um, and famous that it is, uh, it's got a name. It's uh, the Deming uh, Red Beat Experiment. Um, I actually ran a session of the Deming Red Beat Experiment when I did this presentation as a keynote at the PNSQC conference. Um, and the way that this works is you uh, um, 
you take a, a bucket or buckets of, of a mix of red and white beads and you give the to the participants and you have the participants are in groups. And basically what they're supposed to do is use some paddles with holes drilled in them to separate out the red and the white beads. And then the goal is to achieve um, the maximum number of white beads, uh, minimum number of red beads. Um, and so you take it out of one bucket and put the beads into the other um, so that the paddle is used basically to scoop the beads out of the bucket that has the mix in. And the objective is that you're going to um, put the uh, a pure set of, red, of white beads into the target uh, bucket. Um, the task is clearly defined as to how it is to be done. The tools are provided. The process is defined exactly the same way. The time allocated to each of the teams is, is tightly constrained and exactly the same. And then the teams are rewarded and or punished based on the um, uh, contamination, the percentage contamination of their um, target bucket of, of beads, because it's supposed to be pure white. So basically every red bead counts against them. Now, this, <laughs> this is one of those things where you could say, how could, the, how could it be more fair? Um, I mean, you know, the, the, class, the task is defined and its process is defined and you're just measuring, purely measuring performance. Well, um, here's the problem. Statistically, um, if you look at these, these are, these are basically independent random trials. And it, it, over a long enough period of time, um, the results are almost entirely random chance. Um, furthermore, um, the participants are given the tools by the, the manager. Um, in this case, it was me. Um, and the process was defined by me and there was no variation allowed. So you couldn't try to improve it. The raw materials were provided by me, right? So basically these guys were being measured and rewarded or punished based on outcomes that they could really not influence. Their ability to influence the outcomes of these is pretty limited. And I've run a few of these. You can see, if you go out to the RBCS YouTube channel and look around, you can see uh, a couple recorded instances of these, uh, the red bead experiments. Um, <laughs> one of the things that happens that's very, very interesting is that people learn pretty much immediately how to game the system. Like within then this, this picture of the, the event going on at PNSQC conference, I would say within about three or four minutes of starting the experiment, if you watch the video of that, you will see that that more than one group has figured out a way of gaming the the way the, me, the the process works or the way the measurement is done. People are clever, you know, and if you tell them, hey, we're going to reward or punish you based on one thing or the other, well, they will figure out ways of making that happen. Um, and what also happens, too, is that people in these kind of situations get get cynical. They get burnt out. My one of my associates and I are doing an assessment project for a client right now where they have that uh, kind of situation where the the people who are working on this this particular program uh, on, a, on an ongoing basis have been working on it for years. And 
the ones that have been on it longest are the ones who are just really cynical and burnt out because what they've realized is there's just nothing they can do. That the constraints imposed by the client are such that there's just there's just success is just really, really difficult. That that there's gonna be random variation and there's gonna be things that go wrong and, and the ability to influence that is pretty uh, is pretty limited. So, you know, again, as a manager, you might be thinking, yay, me, I'm so smart. I've got this incredibly fair and, you know, uh, 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 quantitative way of rewarding my people. But that's not what your people are seeing. So does this remind you of any metrics programs you've seen? If you think if you're saying no, you either haven't seen a lot of metrics programs or you're not looking at ones around you closely enough. There's a reason why that Deming Redbeat experiment has been famous for 50 plus years. Uh, it's not because it's an outdated act of fiction. All right. So look at these thermometers. Which one shows a lower temperature? If you thought the blue one, if that was what immediately occurred to you, well, that's going to be pretty typical. Though, of course, if the blue thermometer is Celsius and the red thermometer is Kelvin, huh, and probably, probably not. Uh, so th this is something that can happen. You do comparisons without knowing the units. Um, it's a common mistake. Um, now, another thing is doing math without knowing units. I mean, it's one thing to do a comparison and say, oh, I think I a relative scale here. But, you know, math, you're, you're supposed to know units. You might say, no, no, no. Surely everybody understands that you can't do addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division on numbers unless you know that they're, they're in the same units or just know what the units are. Oh, no. Au contraire, mon frere, um, people do this all the time, all the time. And Agile is a great example of this. A great example lives right in the heart of Agile automation, which is the test pyramid. Now, I don't have a problem with the test pyramid. I think this is a good idea. Um, I think Mike Cohn came up with a very nice way of representing it. It's not an original idea to Mike. I mean, this idea of let's remove bugs earlier and leverage automation to do that. I mean, that's, you know, this is basically uh, efficient phase containment. It's an idea that goes way, way back, but I'm all for, you know, uh, repackaging best practices and in, in um, terms and figures that will appeal to people. But the problem with the, the, the test pyramid is not the test pyramid as a metaphor it's the test pyramid as literal mathematical truth. And we see this with clients where they will do things like say, oh, well, you know, we have 10,000 automated unit tests and we've got 100 automated integration tests and we've got 10 automated system tests. Therefore, we're doing the test pyramid. Uh, to which I reply, really? I mean, how big are your unit tests and how are you measuring the size of the unit tests? Because aren't those really small and don't those just cover a few lines of code if we want to measure using lines of code executed by the test versus a system test that, you know, a well-executed system test could 
keep covering 100,000 lines of code in single test. So we just measure it based on the number of lines of code executed. Aren't the system tests like 10,000 times bigger? And isn't this really just a distraction from the metaphorical point of the, of the test pyramid anyway, which is try to find bugs earlier via automation and remove them when they are cheaper. That's the point. If you get all distracted around how do I normalize the units of my automated tests in my test pyramid and compare them to each other, again, we're back to the Hawthorne effect. We're back to being focused on the wrong thing. Uh, sort of an extension of this um, or a, a variant of this, I guess, would be we run into this thing with clients where it's like, well, we want 100% test automation. And I'm like, really? 100% test automation? I mean, first off, how, how would you even calculate that? Uh, what would that mean? I mean, would that mean that, that just by we don't test anything that's not automatable, therefore we're 100% automated? Well, geez, that seems kind of odd. I mean, that's like we're not going to do something that's important because we can't figure out a way of doing it with a tool. I mean, does that, does that make sense? Um, maybe there's some tests that need to be run, but they only need to be run rarely. Right? So do we automate those? There's really no business case for them. I mean, it's kind of like this, this um, Rube Goldberg machine that you see over here in the cartoon where this is an uh, uh, automated tool for uh, wiping his mustache, the eater's mustache, after he eats some of his soup. Uh, so you notice that the raising of the spoon, which is labeled A, pulls on the string, which is labeled B, which in turn tugs on the string labeled C, which shoots the toast up into the air, which, or whatever that is, cracker, and then the parrot moves, uh, pouring water into the bucket, which causes um, the pulley arrangement to move uh, over on I, J, K, uh, L, and M, um, which then um, the M moves and causes the wiper to come down and wipe the mustache. Or you could just pick up the napkin and wipe your mustache every so often, <laughs> right? Now, again, you might look at this and go, no, nah, no, surely, surely nobody ever does anything that stupid. But I can tell you as a consultant, I have many times gone into organizations and they show me their bright, shiny automation um, solution. And I say, where's your ROI model? How are you measuring the business case for the tests that you're automating? And they don't know. They don't have one. They can't do this. So this is total tail wagging dog stuff. And, and it's, again, it's stupid metrics tricks, right? Um, and that's just setting aside the, the whole issue of if, if we do get to 100% automation, doesn't that just mean that all we're doing is verification and we're not doing any validation? Because really, validation types of tests, since your oracle is much more subtle, uh, you're not, you know, I mean, a, an automated test is verification because you're you're checking whether a specified requirement, in this case, a requirement embedded in the test, is actually met. Well, yeah, but validation is about is this thing actually fit for use? Does it serve the purpose? And you're not going to be able to automate a lot of validation tests. 
So does that mean we just ignore validation and we don't care about whether something's fit for use? See, it, tying yourself in knots with this 100% test automation in an effort to become more efficient and you actually just become pointless. All right. So I love this cartoon. This is just, just absolutely hilarious, right? The guy in the balloon says, excuse me, can you tell me where I am? The guy on the ground says, yes, you're in a hot air balloon hovering 30 feet above this field. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, That's totally true. But it's also irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. I mean, the guy knows that. Why tell the guy something that he knows? Obviously, what he wants to know is, in, in where is this field in relationship to where I think I am? <laughs> because I'm lost. Right? Now, again, this, you might look at this and go, that's really funny. That's really that's so hilarious. But we're not doing that. Oh, you might be. Um, so when I do assessments for clients of their test process, there, there are a couple questions that I ask people who are not testers, but are people who receive test results. And I ask them, do you understand the test results? Do the test results help you do your job? <laughs> and I get most commonly either no, I don't really understand the test results, and therefore no, they don't help me do my job. Is how could they? Because I don't understand them. I also get yes, but no. Yeah, I understand it, but it's completely irrelevant, right? So, so either in, in a lot of cases, either the results are inscrutable; it's impossible for somebody to understand what they mean, or they're irrelevant to the people they're showing them to. So, you know, you always want people to be able to answer the "so what" question about a metric. What? So what? What does this metric make the person seeing it? think about, understand, want to do, right? So what? Um, if you don't have a good answer to that so what question about a metric, there's a pretty good chance that this is not something that that person needs to see. And remember, your answer and their answer to the so what question can be different. So something could be highly relevant and understandable to you and completely inscrutable and or irrelevant to somebody else. Now, kind of related to this is this water cannon of raw data, fire hose of data. So I did some work with a client once and I took a look at what they were doing in a previous release of their software. And they uh, um, had two guys, two consultants, who as a full-time job were going through the test results and producing this 20-plus page test report. And it had test case counts analyzed every which way, and it had bug metrics analyzed every which way, and there was a huge amount of data. Um, and they were doing this every day. It was a full-time job. They produced this report every day. It was a project status meeting report. They delivered it to various people, including the project manager. Now, I looked at this thing, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. I did some quick math in my head. I'm like, yeah, it was 12 weeks that they were producing that, two full-time Accenture consultants, so that's $100,000. 
Um, so I, I asked the project manager, so, you know, of this, this big, thick report that you get, uh, how many of these things would you say, these charts are like your core dashboard charts that you rely on to drive your project? And I figured she'd be able to pick out one or two of them. And she said, oh, that damn thing, I just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> $100,000 literally turned into trash. $100,000 in 12 weeks. That's that's not so great, <laughs> right? So this is this is the water cannon of raw data. Right? There are tools out there that just will spit out lots of data, bang, 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 but there's really not a whole lot of information in it. So again, getting back to this inscrutable and or irrelevant problem, right? You're giving people these long reports and it's got all of this test case numbers and bug metrics and all the test case numbers and bug metrics are all very useful to you as a tester or test manager to manage your test effort, but it doesn't actually address the important questions that your stakeholders will have that managers actually care about, which are things like, well, what's been tested and what hasn't been tested? And, and test case counts do not tell you that. Test cases are abstractions. You got to trace the test back to what you set out to cover, what requirements have been covered, what supported configurations have been covered, what risks have been covered, what user personas have been covered, et cetera, right? Not how many tests have been run. That is not a, a useful answer to the question, what's been tested and what hasn't? What is still at risk? So what either we haven't tested yet or we've, we've tested it and it doesn't seem to work and we've got problems. If we were to release now, are there areas that we can have confidence in? Are there areas that we shouldn't have confidence in? These are the things that management actually wants to understand. These are the things that your stakeholders want to understand. And to the extent that you're hitting them with data that doesn't have to do with those kinds of questions, and you're hitting them with a lot of it, you are basically hitting them in the face with a water cannon, just like this guy here. Uh, and again, you know, you could say, this is obvious, Rex. I can't believe I just spent you know, time listening to this. But really, truly, I mean, I talk to a lot of organizations around the world, big companies, small companies, all sorts of different industries. This happens all the time. There's a line to use sometimes. Um, if you're sitting around a table in a business meeting and you don't know who the sucker is, it's you. Well, so kind of analogous here is if you're sitting listening to this and you're thinking that you've never made any of these mistakes, you have. I've made these mistakes too. I'm not holding myself up as perfect. What I've done over the years is come to recognize these mistakes and recognize times in my own career when I made them and be able to see, oh, th this is, you know, th this is a mistake. This doesn't work. All right. So there's a whole group of people um, out there who will say metrics are evil, test metrics especially are evil, quality software quality metrics are evil, don't do metrics. Metrics are harmful. Um, well, no. Bad metrics misused in stupid ways are harmful. But here's the thing. Ultimately, you have to make decisions. 
And you can choose whether you want to make decisions on facts or opinions, first impressions, common sense, things other than facts. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, 2,500 years ago, smart Greek philosopher named Aristotle uh, wrote a bunch of smart things, but in, he also wrote something stupid, which was that heavier objects fall faster than lighter objects. So he said that, and for 2,000 years, people believed that. And then somebody, I think it was Galileo, uh, it might have been it might have been another one of those Italian Renaissance scientists went up into the leaning tower of Pisa. I do remember that it was in Pisa that this happened with two different weight cannonballs. So one smaller cannonball, one larger cannonball made out of uh, both made out of iron, I suppose, or lead or whatever. But they were one was much heavier than the other. And he dropped them off the side of the leaning tower and noticed that they both struck the ground at exactly the same time thus putting the lie to an idea that had been accepted for 2,000 years because it sounded reasonable. Right? And it's, so this is the problem, is that your, your brain, human cognition and human psychology are, are, are really susceptible to all sorts of fallacies and, 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 uh, and mistakes that you can make um, and certainly one way that you can make a mistake is the thing that sounds reasonable that is wrong. And the way that you know the difference between reasonable and true and reasonable and wrong is through facts, which is like metrics and measuring things. Okay. So now the thing that's really remarkable about the Leaning Tower of Pisa story and the cannonballs is if you think about Greece, if you've ever seen Greece, it's not like Greece looks like Kansas. Okay. It's not like it's flat. And it's really hard to find a place to do that experiment. Greece is like full of cliffs. And, you know, it would have been very easy for Aristotle to walk up to a cliff with two different weight rocks, drop them off the cliff and see which one hit the water or the ground first. And when they both hit the same time, he must have, he could have said, oh, wow, that's not true. Heavier objects do not fall any faster than lighter objects. Right. But. Sounded reasonable. So what happened was, sounded reasonable to him, so he wrote it down. So that was his assertion, and that was basically proof by assertion for 2,000 years. You know? And this is an example of, of a bad idea that thrives in a low-fact setting. So you pick it. Do you want to go by proof by assertion, or do you want to have evidence? And if you want to have evidence, you need to have metrics. So then you could say, well, okay, fine, but you just spent, you know, 40 minutes of my time telling me about all these stupid metrics tricks, so how am I supposed to avoid them? Well, one of the things, of course, is you don't do any of the things that I talked about, um, but that's, you know, avoiding, avoiding various examples of stupidity is not exactly the, the acme of wisdom, though it's certainly a wise person does strive to avoid doing stupid things that he or she has seen other people do. Um, but as a general procedure for gathering good metrics, always start with the objectives. Start with the so what question. What are you trying to accomplish? And then for each objective, ask yourself, what would it mean to be effective? Like, what are we trying to accomplish and how would we measure that? What would it mean to be efficient? What resource 
uh, utilization are we trying to optimize with respect to this objective? How do we do this in a way that is satisfying to people? Um, concise, relevant, actionable. Again, no fire hose of data here, okay? Small set of metrics that you use that are relevant to the objectives and relevant to the people you're showing them to. Not every metric you create needs to be shown to everybody. You can have different metrics for different audiences depending on what they need to know about. And again, the so what question, actionable. Set up the tools properly to gather the metrics. Literally just did an assessment for a client where the tool is set up in such a way that it is possible for people to enter an incident severity that should not exist. The guidelines say, do not use this, but the tool, excuse me, the tool is set up such that it is possible to enter a severity rating that does not exist, that's not defined. And looking at 13 months of data for the incidents, sure enough, there are incidents that have that severity assigned to them. Well, now you might say, oh, yeah, 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 that's that's obvious. But I mean, really, um, yeah, we've seen this. This is not the first time by any means. It's just that it happened to have happened last week. Um, you know, it's not like I picked this presentation because that happened. This presentation has been on my schedule for over a month or over six months. So that's how frequently this kind of stuff pops up. So. You got to get the tool set up right, but the, having the tool set up right is not enough by itself. You have to train people in how to use it. They, you, if you just set up the tool to gather the, the kinds of metrics that you want, classifications and so forth, and you don't explain people how to use them, you will get data out of that that appears to be reasonable but is actually noise because different people would classify defects differently. They would classify tests differently. They classify coverage differently. So you need to make sure that you train people. Um, we had a client where they invested a lot of money setting up their defect tracking system to use something called orthogonal defect classification. And then they never trained anybody in how to select the values in the orthogonal defect classification. They just made the fields all mandatory. And a year later, they went back and looked at it and they found out for all the different classification fields, they did a Pareto analysis the most frequent choice by far for each one of the classification fields was the first item on the drop-down list. So imagine that, right? So people were just like, I got to pick a value here. They pull down the drop-down list, they click on the first value, and then they're done because they don't know any better. Um, now, another thing that's important here too is make sure that you that people have no reason to corrupt the data, to enter invalid values. Right, like that example I gave of, you know, rewarding and punishing developers and testers based on Sev1 bugs and rejected bug reports. You know, part of the problem with that is that it's just incentivizing corruption of the data. Again, this is something I see all the time. Uh, so never, ever, ever confuse a process metric for a people metric. By people metric here, what I mean, an individual or group performance metric. Okay? You do not want to reward or punish process metrics, or you will be incenting people to put noise into the system. And it happens all the time. As I said, the 
uh, red bead experiment. People figured out how to game that in the space of five minutes. Um, and again, just to reinforce, as I said, tailor the metrics in their presentation to each audience. It's not one size fits all. One size fits all means one size fits none. If you're showing the same 30 or 40 graphics to everybody who's any kind of stakeholder in your testing or the quality of the thing you're testing, I can promise you you're doing it wrong. All right, so some conclusions here. Um, keep in mind that the very act of measurement is almost certain to change behavior. Remember the Hawthorne effect? Um, not only is it changing behavior, it redirects attention. This is why people get run over in the street when they're playing with their cell phone. Because they're paying too much attention to their retweets and their likes and blah, 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 blah. Um, they can be more, it can be, you know, more complicated than that too. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, you see examples of people having car accidents because they get distracted by not, not necessarily their smartphone that that happens, but just by, by something happening on the dashboard of their car. Um, you know, why is that light on? Let me look at that light when you're not looking out the windshield and then bam, you run into something. So Remember, measurement and the reporting of a measurement will inherently redirect attention. Um, another thing to keep in mind, just because your heart's in the right place doesn't mean that you're not doing the wrong thing. Those people in that organization that had the, the zero sev one bugs and no rejected bug reports targets for their developers and testers respectively, those people put those in place because they wanted to institute a more just and fair way of evaluating people's performance. I talked to them about it. That's what they were trying to accomplish. They were trying to take subjectivity out of it. They were trying to make it less of a beauty pageant and less of a popularity contest. And instead, what they got out of it was much worse than what they had before. So just because your heart's in the right place does not mean that you're doing this right. Okay. You can't just examine your intentions. Obviously, if your intentions are wrong, then this is all going to go badly. Um, if your intentions are to screw people or to set up a zero-sum game or to otherwise be a, a Jack Welch-style manager, um, then, you know, there you go. You, you, you own the outcome. And, you know, you might be Look, if you know that's a style of management, we'll look at some of these things that I've been talking about and go, huh, that's not stupid, that's genius. But assuming that you are not actually an evil turd and you're not trying to do something wrong, that's great for you. Don't don't go out of the way to do it wrong, but just because you're not doesn't mean that, that everything's going to turn out uh, puppies and, and uh, unicorns. Um, now, these mistakes, I hope that these have been amusing anecdotes to you. They certainly have been somewhat amusing trips down memory lane to me when I've gone through them. Uh, obviously, I mean, I put them out there uh, primarily as uh, primary exemplars of common screw-ups that you can look to and say, hmm, I, yeah, I better not do that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But at the same time, I want to be clear that I entirely reject the idea of a small but noisy minority of testers who say metrics can be misused therefore don't use them 
because that's just silly. Um, I mean, fire can be misused. Uh, therefore, what we eat raw meat and live in caves. I mean, you know, it, basically every every thing that every technological advance that humankind has ever come up with um, has been subjected to some sort of misuse, either deliberate or accidental. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't use it. We just try to learn from the misuse and do it better. Um, so work hard, put good metrics in place. I believe I gave you on the, on a previous, the previous slide, a, a pretty good, um, uh, roadmap for, for how to do that. Uh, it, it is, it's easy to say, and it's hard to do, but it's certainly by no means impossible to do. I've worked with a number of clients to help them put good metrics programs in place, uh, and those those efforts have been successful. So if you apply yourself diligently um, and you stay focused on what you're trying to accomplish and you watch for signs of, of dysfunction, you will be able to succeed with this. All right, so that's the, the, the presentation. So at this point, I'm going to take some questions. Um, so feel free to submit your questions. Uh, first, quick word about our services. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. If you receive valuable information from our free webinars, please help us continue to provide them by making RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We'd be happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need. Send us an email, info at rbcs-us.com. So, again, question line is open. Uh, a question via email. Uh, that's an email question here. Of uh, What would you say is the most expensive example of stupid metrics tricks you've ever seen um well so it, it's kind of how how do you want to measure the expense right so one could measure the expense on money wasted gathering the counterproductive metrics or the use counterproductive and or useless metrics right um that's the direct impact but then there's the you know opportunity costs uh, and uh, consequences of those metrics to like decisions that could have been made properly that, that weren't you know because of the um, um, because of the bad metrics. So um, I had uh, I, I guess so the most remarkable example I guess of a of the latter example of, of the bad metrics program resulting in uh, lack of adequate support for decision-making was I, I had a client that had about a billion dollar annual IT budget and they were looking at their defect metrics because they felt like there was a lot of, uh, a, pro a lot of uh, inefficiency in their, their defect management process. And, um, they they definitely did have problems with that. When I came in and looked, there was clearly evidence of, of a lot of issues with defect management, a lot of efficiency problems. But but it was very difficult to make any to draw any conclusions about what exactly was going wrong, um, because 
the information was so noisy, the, the data was so noisy. Um, and so there was about, uh, we estimated probably somewhere around $100 million in annual waste in their defect management process, primarily associated with late discovery of defects. But we couldn't tell them how to fix that because the data wasn't good enough. Um, and the data wasn't good enough because basically classifications were not set up properly and people hadn't been trained to use them properly. So that's probably the biggest example, I guess, where I, I can I can directly point at the the problems with a metrics program that led an organization to be unable to solve a hundred million dollar problem uh, because of them. Um, let's see. So I've got uh, somebody who wants to be anonymous here. Um, says once I was on a project where we measured emergency releases. Um, we didn't want them. Okay. So fewer is better. It was a large complex system. And so after a major release, there would more often than not be an emergency release. Once we made emergency releases a metric, the team started planning a point release a couple days after the main release so that they wouldn't have to do an emergency release. So this metric changed behavior and it was gaming the metric, but it was probably a good adaptation. So I guess my point is that gaming adaptation to get around metrics can be good, even if they are contrived. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the plus side of this, of course, is that people understood we're going to have to do this. Um, so we may as well just plan on it. And as long as not only did they plan the point release, but they actually set aside adequate resources and so forth so that they were ready to go for it, then, yeah, that's a good outcome. Um, and, and so this is an example of, of the gaming of the metric and the um, uh, adaptation to the metric actually did end up driving the right behavior, um, though in a way that management probably wouldn't have anticipated. Management probably wanted, you know, magic wand, every release is perfect when it first goes out. That's not connected to reality. So the team responded in a pragmatic and in this case, a practical way <laughs> to that um, behavior. So yes, that can happen. Um, and of course, I, you know, my, my um, objective in this presentation was to give examples of, of bad things that, you know, that's not to say that good things don't happen as well, right? So, you know, that's, that's just worth, uh, worth mentioning. So thank you, Anonymous, for that. Uh, let's see, I got a question from Mark. Um, how do we establish an ROI model for automated testing? Okay. Um, so first off, you have to decide what are you, what are you trying, what outcomes, what objectives are you trying to achieve through automation right now? So if what you're trying to do is reduce the cost uh, and or duration of testing required to 
mitigate regression risk to an acceptable level. So you're going to automate a bunch of functional regression tests. If your main concern is we want that to be cheaper than if we um, um, did it manually, but at the same time, we don't want to accept an increased level of regression risk, then what you need to do is measure the effort that is associated with um, automating, uh, initially automating and maintaining the automation of the regression tests and the cost of executing the tests on the one hand versus the cost of doing the same thing manually. Uh, return on investment is the uh, net benefit of the investment divided by the cost of the benefit, uh, the, uh, divided by the cost of the investment. So the net benefit of the investment is the cost of the, is the gross benefit minus the cost of the investment. So the net benefit has to take into account the, the um, what you spent to get the automation up and running in the first place. Um, it's a little more involved than that if you're trying to measure ROI for uh, other objectives, such as testing things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to test, like with performance and so forth. But it, it certainly can be done. Uh, obviously, um, uh, you know, there, there's stuff that's been written about this. I've written stuff about this in some of my books. Um, if you need more help than that, then, you know, there, there are consultants and you're listening to one of them who are happy to help. Um, so I got a question from Don here. What metrics can you use in agile environments to, to assure successful software development? Well, assuring successful software development would be something that'd be a little bit beyond what I think you'd want to count on because that's like saying, Oh yeah, well we measure these things and everything will go well. I, I guess what are useful metrics in agile to keep you pointed in the right direction? Well, certainly looking at things from a test point of view, like defects and coverage and um, status of your tests um, and um, including um, successful test execution and definition of done, um, looking at, at velocity, including testing uh, as part of uh, how you uh, estimate and measure velocity. You know, those are all, all key ideas. Um, I have another question here from Don. What are the best metrics to use if you have a time-sensitive project? Um, well, just in general, let's go back to this issue of, you know, what are the objectives? All right. Um, so, I mean, if, if, the, if, if the primary objective has to do with timeliness of delivery, then, you know, you want to look at your metrics in terms of how, how the things you're doing are supporting timeliness of delivery. Um, again, you know, start with your objective, be able to state your objective and then derive metrics for effectiveness, efficiency, and satisfaction from that objective. Um, don't just start with metrics. This is a common mistake. And you know, one of the things that goes wrong, people buy expensive test management tools and they're like, yay, we've got this test management tool, we'll just use the canned reports in it. And some 
smart aleck like me comes along and asks people questions about whether they understand the results as they're reported to them and whether their understanding of those results helps them do their job better and finds out, no, they don't understand them and no, they can't use them. So don't start with metrics. Start with things like objectives. All right. Um, so thanks for your questions. We're going to uh, close the session out. Remember, we run these free webinar sessions once a month. Um, we are now doing these longer ones, though. The longer ones, I'm trying to keep to the an hour now. I'm trying to get a more more compact. So this one's an hour. Um, we're going to alternate the hour-long ones with uh, one key idea sessions, which are you know every other month. One key idea, like 20 to 30 minutes, and it's very focused. So next month is a one key idea. You should see an invite on that real soon now. Um, so you can check our website, rbcs-us.com, to sign up for the invites and to sign up for the webinars themselves and to sign up for our regular free newsletter, which gets you discounts on consulting and testing services and information about what we're doing lately. Uh, my contact information is shown here, Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook are all great ways to get in touch with me if you want to uh, discuss things, keep track of, of ideas that I'm talking about, uh, pretty active on those. Also, don't forget about our YouTube channel. All of our, web, all of our webinars are uh, recorded and posted to the YouTube channel along with other stuff that's out there. Um, so I'd encourage you to subscribe and, and take advantage of that. Um, the blog is back, rbcs-us.com slash blog, so uh, feel free to check that out. Uh, we offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company. But don't forget, we do need to keep the lights on, so please make us your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. This concludes the webinar. Thanks to everyone for joining us today.